I did not break the law. You don't understand me. That's your trouble. Not my fault because you don't understand me. I don't understand you either. But I don't spend my whole life trying to put the blame over on you because my cigarette didn't light or because something didn't work right. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I don't need to live in this physical realm. I walk around in the physical realm and I put on the faces and I talk and I play and hang yeah, It's this big act, man. The realm you live in, guilty and is he in sin? How's your courts guilty? How many people do you think you've hung on the ventilators in the nut wards and forced medication on them? You see what I'm saying? You don't have any idea what the hell's going on. If you knew what the hell was going on in your own system, then you'd say, I, now I see what's creating this. Society's creating it. Society's saying, we want these Rambos. We want these killers. Oh, wow, man. Look at that dude there. And you got all your kids out here doing these crazy things. Now you want to come and say, Charlie Manson's the father of our country. We're convicting you for being Jesus Christ. We're convicting you for being the devil. We're convicting you for being responsible for our actions. I'm going to give you another reason why I'm here. I'm here to help you a little bit. Because the guy next door to me said, Charlie, I know you. And I like you. And you've helped me out of a few tight situations, and I owe you one. I said, what's that? He said, I seen that show on TV the other day, and that's wrong. I get out in eight months. Is there anything you want me to do? Now, what do you want me to tell him? Do you want me to tell him to come and see you? Do you want me to be the guy you're trying to make me? Do you want me to be the guy that orders people to die? Do you want me to be the dispensation of life and death? You convicted me for dispensating life and death, man. The president of the United States can't even do that. Everything we have to do is, is to get to the truth has to be sneaky. It seems a shame to sneak to get to the truth, to make the truth such an evil, dirty, old, nasty thing. You gotta sneak to get to the truth. The truth is condemned. The truth is in the gas chamber. Alright, so I gotta be honest, this is getting recorded at exactly 3 a.m. now usually I'd be quiet but um, I had my uncle come in from America not too long ago I think it's been a couple of days and he's over the whole relatives are over this is the only time I can record this when I do have some free time because um, I always feel like I'm in my element for some reason I always have these crazy thinking um, mentality at this at this time or any later time i'm not too sure if you guys are at the same pace like imagine when you're actually you know what perfect example when you're driving um and it's like 1 a.m you're driving back from somewhere and you just you start thinking some things it's like either you're high or you're just high on life but myself um it is what it is i have to be like this because this is the relatable source thank you so much for tuning in um I want to thank everyone for uh, the support, all the suggestions you guys have been coming up with uh, to telling me on, on what I should be speaking about. Um, some are, like, i got to be honest, some are pretty dumb. Um, like I had one person say, oh, why don't you talk about life? What about life though? Like what aspects in life? I can do like a 35 part series on life and that still won't cover it. But no dumb ideas here. Everyone's loved at the relatable source. Um, if you're new here, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, the podcast name is the relatable source. If you don't know what it, what it is, it's a series of random, randomized uh, podcasts and series that I usually um, start talking about. Um, this is not 
a motivational aspect. It's more to start a conversation. The reason why I started this was um, if you think about when you sit down at someone's house or or like you're having a barbecue, you're sitting on the couch outside or in the garage and someone brings up a topic and you just can't stop talking about it. You're nonstop um, digging in and it just continues on and on and on and on and on and, and it's nonstop. So um, that was part of the reason I figured like, you know, it's a win-win situation. I'm putting my facts and my research in there and, you know, I would love some feedback and some suggestions on on uh, or opinions on, on what you guys think about it, you know. Um, at the end of the day, I realize when creating every podcast is how everyone is connected through past, present and future actions. Um, you know, pitching this idea to my friends they were like, you can, well, what are you going to talk about? Pretty much everything. It's a learning experience. I want to learn from you guys as well as, you know, I would love to spark some interest in your brain about the topics that I do talk about. Um, if you can relate to it, beautiful. That's exactly what I'm trying to reach at. If you can't and you actually hate it, I would still like to know because, you know, um, uh, bad publicity is still publicity and it's still good publicity. Um, uh, but look, at the end of the day, this podcast is free. I do ask for one small fee. Um, if, if like you, you find something that you can relate to, something that will put value in your life, um, something that you will disagree with or don't like it, but still want to kick it and stick in and, and find out more, um, tell a friend, a group of friends, or if you really want to hook a brother up, give a five-star rating on where you're listening to this, uh, podcast, uh, that really does do a lot of help for a lot of people that would come in, um, and, and listen and um you know uh, look it's it's sort of a a cry to start a community on this um but let me know anyways um we'll move into this i'm pretty sure from what you guys uh, have um seen from the title this is gonna be a very sadistic uh sort of podcast and and it's it's a particular individual and a group of individuals that i've i've pretty much heard about um, for a while, uh, movies have been done from them, documentaries, I'm trying to understand their mindset, but you know, it's, uh, it's the ever famous Charles Manson. Now, Charles Manson had experienced a very bumpy childhood being the son of a teenage bisexual alcoholic prostitute. Let me repeat that again. His mum was a teenager because she had him at the age of 16. She was bisexual, an alcoholic, and a prostitute. Um, he was being shuffled between homes of relatives and orphanages. Um, did I say that right? Orphan Orphanages? That doesn't seem right, but you get what I'm trying to say. Um, it is not surprising to see that his criminal activity, it pretty much started from a very early age. Um... Now, the reason why I got so interested in Charles Manson was um, this guy had such a huge influence on the people that he pretty much recruited. And uh, for a face like that, he managed to get all these girls to listen to him and do his dirty work and, and so forth. And what you're going to um, basically learn in this podcast is the power of influence and how it can pretty much reach anyone you'd like and pretty much do for them to do anything in, in your order, good or evil, in this aspect it is evil, but also on what led to that evil, what led to that decision making, what led to an individual to go that higher up on killing all these people, spoiler alert, he's a killer, um, and how it all ended, you know, um, 
some things that uh, you might find interesting. If you haven't heard about the person, it'll be good to sort of do a research on him. It's it's uh, it's, uh, it's really interesting. The purely, I, I just wanted to know more about him. I always heard about him. I always knew that he was evil. I just didn't know what he what he done. And I always heard about the Manson family, but I, I had no clue on what they were about and and what they they were trying to do. But um, without further ado, let's get into it. Manson's incredible charisma. They attracted many hippies and he managed to earn himself a reputation as godlike, literally godlike, um, in the eyes of many, many beautiful girls. Um, when Manson and his quote-unquote family settled down the Spahn Ranch, he was able to sleep with a different girl pretty much each, each night. When you Google this guy, if you have never seen him, just look at the face. This is the same guy that apparently was sleeping with a different girl each night. Not because he asked or anything like that, because they wanted it. I don't know. They, the hippies, I don't know what they were smoking back then, but it was pretty strong. And I'm pretty sure that um, his influence was was crazy. Um, it sort of reminded me like of someone like Hitler. But anyways, let's get into it now. Not only this, but he had the power to make his family members murder whoever made him unhappy in fact the family members were often more than happy to commit murder as it pleased him it pleased charles manson now the family used particularly gruesome methods of hom of homicide and one woman um who you'll know the name on name of a bit uh later on in the podcast uh had even contemplated carving let me say that again. She contemplated carving an unborn baby out of the body of a murdered woman as it would have made Manson proud. Pretty much giving her some star points and favoritism towards her leader, her savior, if you will. Now, he abused power severely by ordering his family members to kill people, often random for his satisfaction. And being in this position... He could have prevented all these murders, but he chose not to. What led to that decision-making? What led to that mindset to basically say no? Um, and it never, he, never his, he never hesitated to discourage them at all. So we've all, or most of us, have heard his name before and have probably only had a fraction of, of knowledge on this guy. Me personally, the only thing that I really knew about him was I was watching Annabelle, the creepy movie uh, about the doll and how she's possessed and so forth, right? And there was this scene where the couple hear a noise of someone breaking into their house. This was back in the 60s, I believe. Um, the setting was in the 60s. So the husband goes out with a bat and the wife goes and comforts her baby. In the back of the scene, you will have what looks like a mental patient who supposedly, when reading into it after I finished the movie, was a follower of Charles Manson, and he wanted to stab the baby and kill the mother. Wait, wait. No, no, I'm, I'm reading that scene wrong. So, no, no, she wasn't actually comforting her baby. She was, at this point, she, she, was she? Scratch that. She actually wasn't looking to go to comfort her baby. She hadn't even had the baby at this point and the guy who looked like shit stabbed her in the stomach and ended up getting shot with his 
with his bitch by the cops because he had a an, uh, um, his side piece on the side. But in all truths, that's how I that's how much I know about the guy up until now. That is, I mean, I always seen his face on documentaries here and there. Knew he was a psychotic um, psychopath, but um, with a big swastika symbol tattooed on his forehead, that was that was a clear giveaway that this guy was not, you know. I guess a child of God, if you will. Um, now, the summer of 2019, it marks the 50th anniversary of the infamous Manson murders. The nine brutal killings committed by the Charles Manson followers, who were known as the Manson family, quote unquote. And with this fucked up anniversary comes a ton of new movies, TV shows that touch on the topic. The bloke who always looks like he smell, he's smelling shit, Quentin Tarantino, he released the movie with Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, on July 26th. Um, you got Oxygen's premiered a two-hour special called Manson, The Woman, um, on August 10th, I believe. And now Netflix is dropping a season two of hits um, crime show Mindhunter on Friday. If you're listening to this a bit later on, it's already dropped, and uh, and I'm, I'm I'm definitely not responsible for any for no timeline mishaps. Um, at this point, it's clear that many people, including myself, are still fascinated by the Manson family and their murders today that happened back in '69. To dig deep in this psychotic evil family and its leader, uh, let's start from the beginning. Basically, his childhood. I'll name this chapter Charlie's childhood. Charlie's Childhood. I don't know how you Americans do that with the R's. Um, Charles Manson was born in Cincinnati, on Ohio, on November 12, 1934, when his mother was just 16 years old. His biological father was absent and never a part of his life. But his mother married a different man just before he was born. And from him, Charlie took the name Manson. So a bloke on the street called him that. Before even researching into this, I already knew this man had father issues, and and this just proved it. Some guy knocked up his mother at the age of 16, left to get some milk, and never came back. And just before he came into this world, he was raised by another man who wasn't his father. At the age of four, Charlie's mother was fucking up even worse by committing. She committed armed robbery and ended up getting locked up for, I think it was about seven years. Now, the guy, Charlie, that is, Charles Manson, the guy had no influence from both his mother and his biological father, even though they reunited five years later. After the prison sentence, um, Charles and his mother, he was already in the mindset of being a criminal. At just nine years old, he was cutting school and stealing anything he wanted to get his hands on. As a result of his behavior, Charles ended up spending much of his childhood in reform schools and other facilities for delinquent boys. Um, I'm assuming they're very, it's, it's, it's a controlled environment, very managed well by um, upper uh, people and, and it's coordinated to, to the point everything is systemized, everything has to be in order for, it's sort of like the army, but um, that's gruesome. Um, all the while though, he was committing petty crimes, which eventually escalated to federal crimes such as transporting stolen cars across state lines now you're listening to this and you're like that's not so bad actually i mean he's a criminal but he's not yeah 
All this was leading to Charles following his mother's footsteps by ending up in the pen. And it eventually happened in, in, in 1956. In 1956, he was given his first adult prison sentence, and for the next 11 years, he would have an in-and-out relationship with the system. For 11 years, he was pretty much getting in and out of the prison. I don't think this guy has ever had a good childhood, ever. Point blank, ever. Chapter 2. Building the Manson Family. In 1967, 32-year-old, he's 32 at this point, 32-year-old Charles Manson was released from prison once again, this time from a correctional facility in the state of Washington. He then made his way to San Francisco and quickly found a home in the counterculture movement there. Reportedly obsessed with being the center of attention, Charles became a sort of spiritual guru and built up the following he built up a following with, with the hippies um, in, in Hay, ha Asbury district of the city where the so-called summer of love, quote-unquote, was already underway. Most of the followers were collected um, from that area and, and they were mostly vulnerable. They were vulnerable young women who were looking for a sense of belonging and that's exactly what he gave them. Um, James Buddy Day, the director of The Manson, The Woman, says, The biggest thing I came to understand about him was that his trick, for lack of a better word, was he would reflect people back to themselves. In a sense, his influence was not in, in by, telling, by telling them to do whatever he wanted at the start. He wanted to basically learn that person he wanted to know exactly how they are as a person but he also gave them and and spoke exactly what they wanted to hear i'm pretty sure he would call them beautiful and then kept on you know doing all this uh lovey-dovey bullshit but it worked it worked i mean it reflected back on themselves and and they were feeling loved and belonged by a person that you know was in in, in a timeline where love was the answer apparently now the last words of charles manson tells the relatable source if you went to him looking for a father figure or a guru or some sort of christian messiah then he would have just gave that back to you and he was very aware of it i think there's a misconception that manson was kind of going around california recruiting teenagers and turning them into serial killers but these women were all looking for a connection to begin with they and they found that connection not just with manson but with each other so it was a community vibe that's uh, probably i shouldn't have said that word community at the start now should i but listen i'm not trying to tell you to kill people i'm trying to hashtag knowledge is power to you and to myself but in reality in reality if you think about it charles manson was the isis of the hippie infested timeline um, recruiting people telling them exactly what they want to hear and and going on from there and, and doing his dirty work um, see this whole time i thought the manson family was an actual family like a psychotic brother sister cousin type of family but no this shit was a cult the quote-unquote manson family as charles and his followers eventually came to call themselves they went up down the west coast before finding a building they found and built and built 
a home base at LA's Spahn Ranch in 1968. Of all things this guy could have done at the start, get a job, make make a new life for himself, um, pick up new hobbies, you know, work out, do some exercise, go in the entertainment business. No, he ended up recording some spiritual teachings of what he thought was the basis of life and how to dominate or how to be a dominant figure upon those that are weaker. He, he really he really looked looked at himself as, as, a, as a God figure. He really looked him with all he went through and all he that he experienced. Um, he, it makes you realize that at the time that he was in prison, did he actually when he was talking to his friends in the prison cells and so forth? Like, did he did he tell them things that they believed? Is that where it all started? The Manson family, a.k.a. Charlie and his bitches, as I would like to call them, settled down at the ranch. Listening to Charlie's spiritual teachings, taking drugs and rubbing shoulders with the musical moguls, Charlie reported hope. He reportedly hoped it would help him make it big as a musician by living at the Spartan Ranch um, before things took a turn the following year. The Manson's story takes place essentially over two years, James Buddy Day says. Everybody that was there that I've spoken to says the first year was great. It was all fun and laughter. Everyone was playing. Everyone was playing. Everyone was enjoying themselves. There was orgies. There was sex. There was every day. Just plow, plow, plow. Love, happy, peace. All this shit. But there was a lot of affection and support. And they were anything to each other. They were everything to each other. Sorry. Manson was playful and funny and nice. And then things took a turn for the worst in July 1969. And that kind of started the downfall. Also, just to just to um, uh, say a few lines, because uh, because they mentioned July, and July is a very special month for me, because that's the month that I was born in. Uh, for all those that are into horoscopes, you better not be thinking that this evil started because it was the month of of the Leos. All right, we're very good people. Leos may want the center of attention, but they're also very loving. Alright, thank God he wasn't born in that year. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Chapter 3, The Infamous Manson Murders. Now, the first victim of Charlie's followers to end up being killed was a musician, and he was a friend of the Manson family. His name was Gary Hinman. This is the same guy that Charlie's... Sorry, no. This is the same guy... That Charles Manson was hoping would introduce him into the music industry and he basically started his career as a musician from how they described Mr. Heinemann he was very he was a very good friend of Charlie one day or a scope of several days the Manson family including Bobby Buscelli and Susan Atkins had come down to Gary to collect some money which I'm assuming he owned but it doesn't go doesn't go that specific when they all had no luck, they killed him, reportedly on Charlie's orders. Um, things took a took a turn for the worse in July 1969. That kind of started, started it all, but the violence doesn't stop there. On the night of August 8, 1969, a couple of days after, four Manson family members, Susan, Susan Atkins, 
At 21, Susan Atkins would become the most visible member of a ragtag bunch of killers, the Manson family. A one-time nice little kid as she grew up in Northern California, Susan became a popular babysitter, captained her school swimming team, and sang in the church choir. Then when her mother died, Susan Atkins ran away from home, and she fell in with a dangerous little man who had spent virtually his whole life in jails. And so at 18, Susan Atkins became one of Charlie's girls, as they were called, one of the first. More would join her, and in time, all of them would develop a fanatical loyalty to Charles Manson, nurtured by his persuasiveness and hyped by the unrelenting use of drugs. So after 300 LSD trips in two years, when Manson sent Susan Atkins and others of his family to kill, they did it. Later, looking, sounding, and acting crazy, Susan Atkins would spill it all and tell a grand jury what happened. With terrible detail, she would describe how she murdered movie actress Sharon Tate and her yet unborn baby, and then participated in the murder of four others on that hot summer's night at the actress's Hollywood home. Susan Atkins is 28 now. She's just ended her first seven years of a life term. She has spent five of them here at the California Women's Institution in San Bernardino County. She's just had her first parole hearing and been turned down. But the people who work with her here say that she's made a remarkable change in the last two years. They say she's become a devout Christian, and she says she wants only to serve God. Susan Atkins feels that her horrifying experience with drugs can be a lesson to those that use them or think about using them. She hasn't spoken with a reporter since the trial in 1970. She got word to me that she wanted to talk about the dangers of drug use, that she also wanted to reveal something new about the murders. What happened that night you all went to Sharon Tate's house? What really happened? Well, I remember getting in the car with Tex and... Tex my, Watson. Tex Watson and my other two co-defendants, three co-defendants, actually. Um, and before I ever got in the car, Tex and I had our own special little stash of uh, cocaine. You know, I think it was cocaine or methadrine, I'm not sure which. We went to the speed and we both snorted some speed and got in the car. We were very, very wired. And we drove to the house uh, with instructions to kill everyone in the house. From Charlie? Yeah. Um, and not just that but that we were instructed to go all the way down every house, hit every house on the... On the street? On the street, yes. And kill all the people kill in those houses? all the people in all those houses. Um, and we went into the house, and I remember that... As we went in, uh, a car came up to the driveway and I remember Tex getting out, and without saying anything, there were gunfire sh shot. I was in the bushes, and... Uh, That's when the young boy, Stephen Parent, was, right, killed, was killed in the right. car outside. Right. The people in the house were all brought into the living room and tied up, and... I remember that... Wojtek Bykowski, I believe is his name. I had tied his hands with a towel and then was instructed to kill him. And I raised the knife that I had in my hand and I couldn't put the knife down. 
I, I, could not, I couldn't bring it down. It was just as though there was a force there that held my wrist and I couldn't, I couldn't move. And as he saw that I couldn't move, then he very easily undid the ties, the towel that I'd tied his wrist with, and he and I began to fight. And I remember I was screaming for help, and he was screaming for help, and uh, then Tex came and helped me, and I was left to sit and watch Sharon Tate. And about that time, it, I can remember seeing people just scattering in different places and running in different places, and I was left sitting with Sharon Tate, and she was talking to me, and I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her um, as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. And, uh, I remember when we first went in, uh, one of the people said, who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And I remember that in my conscience, it, it's so alive in me, even just recalling it, I remember that I had gone so far and there was no turning back. There, even if I had wanted to run, even if I had wanted to leave, I couldn't. It was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil is the only way I can put it. And I believe that it was by the grace of God that my hand did not go down with that knife on Wojciech Kowski's chest. I believe that... Uh, well, who did kill those people? That night? Yeah. Tex. Um, they drove, those four members drove to the home of a well-known director, Roman Polanski. That might ring some bells to you guys. Um, also, who his wife was. Again, they allegedly did so on the orders of Charles himself, who had instructed them to kill whoever they found there. Imagine that. Someone telling you to go over to someone's house. The intention, because his hate was for one person only, but regardless, kill anyone that was there. Everyone, every single living being that is there, kill him. Although Roman Polanski wasn't home, but his eight-month pregnant girlfriend, actress Sharon Tate, was along with her friends Jay Sebring, a celebrity stylist, Abigail Folger, the coffee heiress, and Wojtek Frykowski, Abigail's boyfriend. They were all there. But Roman wasn't. Now, because of their orders, they had to do what they had to do. Susan, Tex, and Patricia snuck into the Los Angeles mansion and brutally murdered all four of the friends. Plus, Stephen Parent, who was a friend of the home's caretaker. Linda, meanwhile, stood outside to keep guard and made sure that no one saw what they saw. They did it on a very quiet very quiet night and killed everyone it was sort of like a hitler like on the amount of influence and power that charlie had over his followers when we when we start sort of going into this 
The very next night, the same group of men of the men's and family members set out to kill again. They got a sense of satisfaction when they did it, but this time they brought along the fellow man, a fellow family member, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles himself. So when 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 we hear that, you kind of you also get that sense that they wanted to impress their savior. So on August 9, 1969, Susan Tex, Patricia and Leslie snuck into the home of a grocery store executive going by the name of Leno Labianca and his wife Rosemary murdering the couple while Linda and Charles waited for them to finish. Now it seems as if killing was a fetish to the family members. Toward the end of the of that August, Charles Charles's followers murdered one one more man. His name was Donald Shorty Shea, a ranch hand at Spahn, where they lived. Ultimately though, Charles and his followers evaded the authorities for two months before they were arrested in October 1969 on suspicions of car theft. So they weren't arrested on the killings. They were just arrested on suspicions of car theft. They had a very good system going on on not to try to get caught and continue this following path of Charles Manson. If someone is telling you to kill someone and telling you you probably won't get away, you, you probably will get away with it and you're seeing it firsthand that you are getting away with it, you're going to believe that and you're going to continue doing going on and on and continue to do it. After they were arrested, then the secrets started to come out. Can't remember what chapter this is. Going to trial. Susan Atkins, who had been charged in the murder of Gary Hindman, gossiped about the other murders to follow inmate. And Charles Manson and his followers were indicted in December 1969. And during their trial, prosecutor Vincent Buglisi, I'm going to say that, Buglisi, sounds Italian, famously presented his jurors with a now widely accepted story behind the crimes, the helter-skelter theory. The story goes as follows. Charles had long preached to his followers that a race war of epic proportions was on the horizon. He told them that black people would begin to attack and kill white people. And while this was occurring, the Manson family would hide away in caves. That was a representation that not just the, fan, the Manson family, but pretty much all the followers of Charles. Um, when the violence subsided, Charles said that they would emerge to rule all those who remained. And he believed the Beatles the album White, and specifically the song Helter Skelter. He prophesied this as well. So when Charlie's musical ambitions had seemingly reached a dead end, he needed somewhere else to focus his energy, and he decided to jumpstart the violence of Helter Skelter himself, the prosecution argued. In the end, this argument was convincing enough for the jury, and on January 25th, 1971, after 10 days of deliberation, they found Charles, Tex, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie guilty of all charges. Linda, meanwhile, who had served as the prosecution's main witness, walked away without serving any time. 
the final days of Charlie. Charles Manson and his followers were initially sentenced to death for their crimes, but when California made the death penalty illegal in 1972, their sentences were commuted to life in prison. Those lucky sons of bitches, they got off, they got off, they got off of death. Charlie spent the remainder of his life in the California State Prison in Concoran before dying of natural causes on November 19, 2017 at the age of 83. In his last year of life, Charles came into contact with filmmaker and author Buddy. James Day Buddy. James Buddy Day. Who had begun to write him letters after hearing from other people who had spoken to Charlie while he was in prison. Buddy was hopeful he would reach out to the infamous cult leader, but never believed he would actually respond until one day he did. Charlie and Buddy spoke on the phone somewhat regularly in the year leading up to his death, and during which Charlie began to really open up to the filmmaker, even revealing his account of what actually happened before and after the infamous Manson murders. Charlie claimed that Helter Skelter, in the, in the narrative of Helter Skelter, in which he was portrayed as being obsessed with the Beatles and preaching about an appending race war was entirely inaccurate and that he wasn't guilty of the crimes for which he was charged those of his followers that buddy has also spoken to have made similar claims ultimately though buddy wants to remind those who are fascinated with charlie's story exactly who we're talking about here he says at the end of the day manson was associated with and convicted of taking nine lives really tragically in more contemporary contem, contemporary times let me say that again in more contemporary times you're starting to see him on t-shirts and in movies and he's kind of become this american character of a person i think many people have forgotten who he really was and why he was convicted of after hearing all this you get a sense of influence from both ends charlie aka Charles Manson, was failed by both his parents, who paid little to no attention to him. His mother, who happened to be the last bloodline remaining to influence him to begin on being a good citizen, began to show him shortcuts and what those shortcuts can lead to. However, prison didn't seem to scare him at all, as, as it seemed like he wanted to, ins to escape. He wanted it as an escape. After getting out of the pen, his influence to others, particularly women, went stronger than ever. And at that time, the followers of Charles seemed as if they needed an influencer themselves, almost like a father figure. All those killings were done at the voice of Charlie. And he instructed them on who to kill and they did exactly as they taught him. A sense of jealousy was shown as he wanted to be in the entertainment industry so bad at the start, from killing off big Hollywood directors and, and those that are linked to the entertainment industry. In my opinion, it showed that he wanted what he wanted and what he couldn't have. And because he wasn't having it, he ended up having his girls kill everyone he loved. 
I want you all to, to, to get an idea of like that sort of influence that I was talking about from the start. You, like, in a way, it's it sort of reflects back on not just Charles, but the people that believed him. And, and, and like we have those in, in our days as well. You have like people that you, you just can't believe people are listening to them. Don't use me as an example, all right? Because if, if people are, do end up listening to me, it's it's more in the fact that it might be interesting or they probably like my voice or I'm just trying to use send out positive vibes. But in a way, uh, like a summary on this guy is he he just, because he thought so highly of himself, he didn't want anyone that's above him to have more, to have what he wanted. Entertainment seemed like it was, it was the biggest thing. Um... And that kind of reflected back on the timeline as well, because he was he was back in in um, the hippie area, and I guess the hippie area was was all was all dancing, singing. Um, I'm kind of getting getting that sense because I watched Austin Powers. Um, it was a it's a great you know encyclopedia on the hippie timeline, and and um, yeah, the influence that he had on on the on the on those girls, it's it's more in the fact that. They just wanted, they 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 wanted an escape from. Uh, I'm assuming following the orders of quote unquote the man, but um, and they had that. They had that. This person basically spoke to their ears and told them exactly what they wanted to hear, and, and it worked. Um, there was killings, um, brutal 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 killings. Um, they wanted to please him with the way they killed, and. Um, it worked but i'll let you guys conclude on on that thank you so much for listening um if you uh want want to know what this uh voice is linked to a sort of face you can follow me on instagram and that instagram is called buzz 95 that's b-o-o-z 95 or if you're if you're in america it's b-o-o-z 95 um, 95 is the amount of people that I've influenced in my whole life. <laughs> um, but also, you know, if you want to help a brother out and also plug, I do have a, a page for this podcast. It's called The Relatable Source, one word, on Instagram. That's T-H-E, relatable, just as the word is, and source. Not source, source. You know, the kind of source that you put on your ketchup on whatever food that you wanted to taste. Give it a little kick, you know. Um, but all in all, Thank you for listening. Until next time.